Hello, everybody, my dear subscribers. Thank you so much for the continuing support. I, I the gratitude, my gratitude is immense. This has been really fun to do this and also challenging. I am publishing two or three things a week and I've never done that. I've never been that dedicated and disciplined to my own job. And it's been revelatory. The idea of publishing things that might not be quite finished, publishing things that I'd sort of dismissed in the past, sharing more of the process. I've really enjoyed it. And I've re-fallen in love with my stuff. I've re-fallen in love with the idea and the practice of being a writer, the possibilities inherent in being a writer. So thank you all for that. In that sense, I'm doing something very new now with this short story. It's a sudden fiction. That's one of the terms for very, very short stories. Those that are around 500 words or less. Microfiction is another term for it. Or just plain short, short stories. The redundancy of that. I've published a lot of these. I've posted some here on the newsletter. And I've published others in my books and in magazines and such. I really enjoy the genre. And usually when something's finished and you know it's finished and you look at it and you like it, it's complete. You've somehow managed to put an entire world into 500 words. And then sometimes you finish one of these, you read it, you look at it and you think, huh, this is not supposed to be sudden fiction. This is supposed to be a full-fledged short story. This needs to have about 2,500 more words. And that's how I feel about this story. In successful sudden fiction, there are sentences that carry enormous weight, more weight than they would in a typical short story. They have to do the work, these sentences in sudden fiction, they have to do the work of paragraphs or pages. They, they have to, you know, be time traveling, the way in which you can move from place to place with four words. So these sentences are vital. And I've written some good sentences in this story, but I don't think they yet carry the weight they're supposed to. I think this story needs more framework. I think I have the foundation and the first floor of studs, but there's more to be done. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to share this process. I'm posting here the first complete draft. And as I go on in the coming weeks and months, I'm going to keep posting completed drafts until I come to a point where I think the story is done. I don't know how long that's going to take. I don't know how many permutations the story is going to take on. I don't know how many changes, small and large, I'm going to make. It could be something as simple as changing characters' names or the location of the city or any number of things or adding or subtracting major plot devices, major plot lines. So I hope you enjoy this. Uh, it's very exciting to be sharing this with you. And now that I think about it, kind of scary. Uh, I mean, I've never written with somebody in the room, and that's sort of what it feels like here. I'm realizing Substack is kind of my office now, and you're all peering through the windows. So be kind, uh, or be honest, one or the other.
<laughs> they're not necessarily related. So here's the story. Uh, it's called Good Fences. The next door neighbors, a young unmarried couple, had let their blackberry bushes overgrow their fence like lazy sentinels and drop pounds of fruit onto Jennifer's lawn. The berries rotted and drew aggressive yellow jackets. During college, Jennifer had been wasp stung on the lip at an English department picnic and ended up in the ER with respiratory distress and a face so swollen that her skin threatened to split. I'm allergic to bee and wasp venom, Jennifer had politely said multiple times to her next-door neighbors, Marilyn and Charles, and they, seemingly chagrined, had always promised to take care of the problem. They were friendly, good for a driveway wave or hello. They weren't the kind of neighbors who safeguarded an emergency pair of Jennifer's house keys, but they were courteous enough to notify the neighborhood when they were going to host larger parties that might get a little loud. They had an extensive and enviable backyard and deck. Jennifer had never attended one of their parties. The crowd, like Marilyn and Charles, seemed to be all young and unmarried, not Jennifer's demographic. So she wouldn't have been comfortable anyway. As homeowners, the next-door neighbors were diligent about upkeep. Their house and lawn were in great shape, except for those goddamn blackberry bushes. Jennifer was respectful each time she asked them to trim back the branches, but nothing changed. She had never been confrontational. Her secular parents had nonetheless insisted on a perpetual and cloistered silence in her childhood home, so Jennifer could only fume silently. She'd thought to enlist the help of other people on the block. After all, there were five or six surrounding houses that were also besieged by the Yellow Jackets. But Jennifer was white, and her careless next-door neighbors were a Native American couple. Charles and Marilyn were from the local tribes, Coastal Salish, Orca and Salmon people. Like everybody else in the country, Jennifer had seen the viral videos of white women harassing people of color. So how could she organize any neighborhood action without being seen as a racist? Without being filmed and then tried and convicted before the juries and hanging judges of Twitter? How could she make demands? And she absolutely couldn't call anybody official to intercede. There was no such thing anymore as an ordinary dispute. Each current conflict, no matter how small, contained the weight of every previous conflict in American history. So Jennifer decided that the only safe thing to do was stay out of her dangerous backyard and wait for winter. But on a Saturday, September morning, Jennifer's anger grew as she stood at her kitchen window and counted 17 yellow jackets feasting on the fallen berries. She also drank six glasses of wine. Her house was clean, three bedrooms and two baths. 
her divorce was almost final. She'd left her husband for a man who'd then abandoned her after a few months. She counted two, three, four more yellow jackets. Then she put on two sweaters, a rain jacket, two pairs of jeans and gloves and snow boots. Duct taped her pants tight around her ankles and her sleeves around her wrists. She covered her head with a ski mask and goggles. She looked like a knight of the yard sale. In the garage, she grabbed a shovel and bucket. Then she waddled out to those wild blackberry bushes. She quickly scooped up three shovelfuls of berries along with soil and grass and dumped them into a bucket. She'd fully expected to be stung at least once. Her mobile phone and EpiPen were sitting in plain sight on the kitchen table. She'd left the back door open. If needed, she was ready to run back into the house, inject the life-saving epinephrine into her thigh, and dial 911. But she didn't get stung. And she took that as a sign from God, or the devil, or whatever deity was in charge of vengeance. Or maybe, she thought, the Yellow Jackets themselves approved of her mission. Jennifer dropped the shovel and carried the bucket over to her neighbor's house. She walked up their front steps and hurled the blackberry sludge against their front door. Then she jabbed the doorbell five, six, eight times. An irritated Marilyn opened the door. What do you... She saw the blackberry mess, looked at Jennifer, and immediately understood what had happened. What the fuck, Jennifer, she said. What is wrong with you? Jennifer had wanted to issue some great proclamation or deliver some Shakespearean monologue about social obligations. But she could only repeat her most basic demand. Take care of your blackberry bushes. Take care of your blackberry bushes. Take care of your blackberry bushes. Are you crazy, Marilyn asked. Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Maybe I am. Maybe I am, Marilyn. Are you going to film me now and put me on the fucking internet? Are you going to call me a racist? What are you talking about, Marilyn asked. I'm not going to film you. I don't think you're racist. I think you're a goddamned asshole. I get stung and I could fucking die, Jennifer said. Do you want me to fucking die? You weren't fucking worried about stings when you picked up these goddamn berries, were you? Marilyn slammed the door shut. Jennifer roared back to her house. Over the next few days, over the next few hours, as she sobered up, Jennifer's shame grew suicidally large. At some point, Marilyn and Charles cleaned their front door and they left a handwritten bill for their cleaning supplies tucked beneath Jennifer's welcome mat. She crumpled the bill into a ball and threw it toward the street. Over the next few weeks, Jennifer's shame and anger became fraternal twins. Then, a month after the Blackberry confrontation, Jennifer opened her mailbox to find a padded envelope addressed to the neighbors. A mistake by the mailman. She hesitated for a moment, but then opened the misdelivered package to find a new wedding ring. Jesus, Maryland, 
and Charles, Jennifer thought, who buys their wedding ring through the mail. Late that night, Jennifer took a ladder, leaned it against her fence, climbed up, and slid the wedding ring onto the tallest blackberry branch. There, she thought, if you cut the branches, then you'll find your ring. Back in her house, she scrubbed her hands hard. She felt sticky from touching the blackberries and branches. She could still feel the weight of the blackberry bucket. She still felt like somebody was filming her. Jennifer wondered if she'd ever feel clean again. Okay, so that's the story. As I read it, I made some changes. I think I corrected some grammar, and I think I also messed up some grammar. And uh, the timeline is a little off in here and there, I think. And I don't remember if I mentioned this at the beginning, uh, but this, the beginnings of the story uh, were our neighbor's blackberry branches had drooped over the fence and were dropping fruit into our yard and we addressed it and they fixed it immediately. We love our neighbors. They're awesome. It was an utterly mundane event. But as a writer, what you do is you take that idea, that mundane event, the blackberry branches hanging over a fence and you look at it and for some reason, some lightning strikes in your head and you think, ah, but what if the neighbors disagreed about the blackberry branches. What if the neighbors got hostile about it? And then I added in the idea of culture right now, uh, the things that are happening, the you know the phenomenon of the Karen, uh, the Karen, the the rowdy white woman. And it's rather easy for any of us to look at these videos and see these white women as being these horrible human beings. And maybe that's true. Maybe they are just generally terrible people. But, you know, as a person who suffers from mental illness, as a bipolar person, as a person with bipolar disorder, as a manic depressive, I look at some of these videos and what I see, what I think I see, is somebody who's in obvious mental distress, who's having a breakdown right in front of us. And while our culture extends a lot of sympathy, more sympathy than ever before, to the mentally ill, we generally extend that sympathy to the most attractive versions of it. You know, when a movie star or a pop star or an NBA athlete, a pro athlete, gets interviewed and they're sitting there talking about their anxiety and their depression and they look good and they're articulate and, and, you know, their eyes water and they're, and they're, and, and they're widely admired for their achievements. And it's really easy to feel empathy for that. It's easier to feel empathy for the charming who are mentally ill. It's far more difficult to feel empathy for the disheveled mess acting out in ways they may not even be remotely in control of. So I'm trying to write a story here that delves into the mindset of a person who may act in a certain way. Jennifer here, who uh, 
goes on a rampage, a Blackberry rampage. And depending on what you think, she may or may not be justified in uh, throwing the Blackberries across the door and confronting her neighbors that way. But she's also not necessarily wrong. Uh, her neighbors are being extremely careless and disrespectful of Jennifer's wishes and actually her needs, being allergic to the stings. So I want to write a story that plays with both sides. I think Marilyn and Charles might need more fleshing out as characters, or maybe not. The idea that I'm strictly in the head of Jennifer, I think, might actually be the way to go. And I love, as a Native American writer who's written his stuff, I mean, about 99% of my stuff deals with Native American characters. I think it's exciting to write in the mind of somebody 100% unlike me, a white woman going through a divorce, living in a big house in Seattle. So, okay, there you go. That's the post. Let me know what you think. Thanks. <laughs>